You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Baseball has always been a part of Ben Charrington's life. From his childhood days in New Hampshire mimicking Red Sox batting stances, to his time as a pitcher and an outfielder for Amherst College. Two other Amherst grads, Neil Huntington and Dan Duquette, would play an important role in Charrington's career, which began with the Indians as a video advance scout, moving on to Boston, where he would become part of the front office that helped break the team's 86-year championship drought. Charrington would ultimately become Boston's general manager in 2011 and hit the free agent lottery before 2013, signing seven players that helped reshape a team that went on to win it all. These days, Charrington serves as the vice president of baseball operations for the Toronto Blue Jays. I had a chance to sit down with him recently and discuss a number of topics, from his long days and nights at Fenway Park, to his bizarre first short stint as Sox GM, the Bobby V era, and why he ultimately chose to join the Blue Jays. Enjoy this conversation with Blue Jays Vice President of Baseball Operations, Ben Charrington. Ben, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mark. It's nice to be with you. So for a Red Sox fan raised in New Hampshire, when did it become your goal to work for the Red Sox or maybe more specifically become the general manager for the Red Sox? Well, I wanted to work for the Red Sox when I was four, but that was to play shortstop or, <laughs> or pitch or you know something like that. So I grew up with the team and you know I, I remember standing outside in front of the window mimicking the lineup, the batting stances. I could do that and listen to the games on the radio because you couldn't really get them on TV and going to games when I could with my parents or grand, grandmother used to bring me down. So I grew up with the Red Sox, but then uh, when I got into college, I realized two things. I realized that playing was going to end very soon. And I also realized that hmm, there might be an opportunity to work in baseball in a, in a front office capacity because because at the time, this was the mid-90s, you know, I could start to see people sort of like me, you know, starting to uh, work in baseball front offices. So it, it became something that looked more attainable. You've also spoken about your both of your grandmother's impact on your life. What did what did you take from each of them? I know one of them was very involved in, in your love of baseball. Yeah, you know, they were uh, they were important people. And on my father's side, my grandmother, she was really, really the one who, maybe because she had more time at the time than my parents, but she was the one who would bring me to Fenway Park and bring me to the baseball card shows and, you know, do all those things that I wanted to do growing up. And she became uh, a Red Sox fan herself and would go to games. And so she was a big part of, I think, at least my connection to baseball at the major league level. Anyway, you know, I was playing from the time I was a little kid, but uh, she was, she helped me connect to baseball at the major league level. And then my grandmother on my mother's side, they lived, my, my grandparents lived in Hanover because my grandfather was teaching at Dartmouth. And so she would, you know, she would spend time, she just, I, I basically grew up on Dartmouth, on the Dartmouth campus in, in some sense. I would, she would take me to anything that was going on, whether it was a sporting event or a play or whatever. And, um, you know, I just spent a lot, I spent, I spent a lot of time with both my grandmothers and they both, uh, you know, they both just allowed me to explore and allowed me to learn things and, and uh, did so without judgment. So it was a, I was blessed in that regard. You pitched at Lebanon High School, and you went to Amherst College also to pitch. Give me a scouting report on yourself. <laughs> uh, Six-foot righty with below-average stuff and probably below-average command, and in hindsight, probably below-average mechanics because <laughs> I blew out my shoulder in college and 
uh, could never really throw the same way. So my love and passion for the game outpaced my talent by, by quite a degree. You mentioned the shoulder. You had a torn labrum uh, your junior year, I think it was. Yep. Senior year, you were an outfielder, but you continued to work with the pitchers. You were, you were sort of a student coach. Of yeah, I sort of. Yeah, I sort of became player coach uh, my senior year because I couldn't I couldn't throw much anymore, and I stayed for another year after graduation and coached for another year. And that was a really important time for me. It was it was it was actually it was really it was the only time I had I've actually coached. It was the only time I actually put a uniform on to coach, and so. Uh, while it was at the Division three college level, which is a world away from what we're doing here, you know, the, the players here with the Blue Jays, um, it was an opportunity to walk in those shoes. And I think I, I really connected to the challenge and the importance of coaching and good coaching. Um, and so it's something that's, you know, I've always been interested in and, and really have great admiration and respect for great coaches. You graduated from Amherst with an English degree, went on to get your master's from UMass from the sports management program. When you finished at UMass, did you have a plan of how you were going to attack <laughs> your career? It seems like a... I had a plan from really probably the time I was a junior at Amherst College. I, I knew what I wanted to do. It just took me a while to get a foot in the door. So fortunately, by the time I, I got through the UMass program and I was coaching that year and... Uh, I had connected mostly with Dan Duquette and Neil Huntington, who uh, were both Amherst alums, and, and Dan was obviously with the Red Sox at the time, and Neil was with the Indians. And fortunately, Neil helped me get my foot in the door with an interview for an internship in Cleveland in 1998, and I was fortunate enough to get that internship. And that was, I guess, what I, uh, what I see as my first real opportunity is that year in Cleveland. You mentioned Neil and Dan. How unique is it that three big league executives came out of Amherst College? I've thought about that, and I, I guess, you know, I, I do think it, it, it in some way may circle back to the Red Sox <laughs> in, a, in a weird way because a lot of kids growing up in the Northeast, you know, you gain a passion for baseball, and, and in some respects that's through the Red Sox or through the Yankees and, you know, the, the other you know, teams in the Northeast. And like anything else, if you grow up with a passion for music, then you're going to find opportunities in that direction. And a lot of kids in the Northeast grow up with a passion for baseball. And so uh, you end up pursuing, you know, those opportunities. And if you happen to go to schools that where other people, you know, started to blaze those paths or, you know, clear those paths, then maybe the entry point is a little bit easier. And so it just sort of builds on itself. So you start with the Indians as a video advanced scout in 1998. I feel like every one of these interviews that I do, there's always some connection to Mark Shapiro. Uh, <laughs> almost every executive that I've talked to has some connection, worked for him at some point early on. What were your biggest takeaways from working for Mark for that one year? When I went to Cleveland, I was uh, initially I was, I was really working most closely with Paul DePodesta, um, Josh Burns a little bit, really Paul mostly uh, because I was I was doing uh, video advanced scouting and Paul had done done that prior to me. Uh, so he sort of passed the baton to me. And so Paul is an incredible help. Paul's still one of the smartest people I've ever been around. And so it was a, I was blessed to work with Paul and learn a lot from him. So after a couple months of being there, Paul kind of kept pushing me and nudging me. He's like, hey, you really should spend some time with Mark. And at the time, you know, I was an intern. Mark was the farm director. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, that's that's not an office you knocked on <laughs> as, an, as an intern. So... Um, I said, okay, great. How do I do that? So I think Paul was nice enough to set up, 
you know, some time uh, with Mark for me. I remember spending, you know, 45, and in fact, Mark and I talked about this the other day, and I'm not sure he remembers this conversation, but I do. Uh, I remember spending about 45 minutes in his office, and I, I went in thinking I was going to hear all about Russell Branyan or Jarrett Wright or, you know, the young players that were coming through the Indian system at the time, but that's not what I heard. What I heard was uh, him talk about, with passion, about helping players get better, about coaches in the minor leagues that he was working with, about people who had made a big impact on him, about his dad. You know, it was really about people and players and help and finding a way to help players get better. Um, so I connected with that and I left the office thinking, you know, if I can find a way to, to work in player development somehow, uh, that that was a direction that I wanted to go. And I was lucky enough to do that. Dan Duquette brought you aboard to the Red Sox in 1999. Obviously you had the connection with him through Amherst. What was it like to finally be in the Red Sox offices as an employee and know that this is something you had dreamed of since you were a kid. Yeah, you know, well, the, the, my first job there was as an area scout, so I was actually living in Maryland and covering amateur scouting, and then and about a year and a half later, I moved into the office. And what I remember mostly is that Dan really empowered me to learn, uh, learn how to evaluate, learn how to grow as an evaluator, as a leader, Maybe too quickly, honestly, in retrospect. I mean, he asked me to do some things that I really probably wasn't qualified to do. And so I've I've always been grateful uh, to him for giving me those opportunities. Um, In particular, he asked me to get involved in our Latin American scouting operation and during 2000. So I spent about a year and a half working in that area. And that was, uh, you know, that was a great opportunity for me to continue to learn how to evaluate players who I still think are the hardest players to evaluate since they're the furthest away and there's the most the most change needs to happen with a 16-year-old Latin American player to get to the big leagues so they're the hardest player to scout uh, but also just about myself and how to work with people I was asked to you know to to help the Red Sox um, create some structure in Latin America at a time when I was you know 25 years old and didn't speak the language and um and frankly made more mistakes probably than I should have early on. But that was an incredible opportunity for me just to learn and hopefully help the Red Sox uh, in some ways doing that. And then when the team sold, you know, early 2002, uh, part of that transaction was that John Henry was going to bring the Marlins International Scouting Group to the Red Sox, which in hindsight today wouldn't, you know, today that wouldn't happen, I don't think, to bring a group like that sort of en masse. But Anyway, it was, I guess, a benefit to the Red Sox because the Marlins had a lot of good people in international scouting at the time, and that group came over full force. So all of a sudden, I was short-term out of a job, and then thankfully, about the same time, Theo came on board um, and recognized that there may be a need in player development, and we had gotten to know each other well enough. He knew that I had a passion for that, so he thought that maybe I could help in some way in player development. So it was a uh, sort of convenient time and lucky for me, um, an opportunity that that's when I got the opportunity to kind of get involved in player development. You once joked that in 2002, when the Red Sox were taken over by new ownership, that it felt like a startup. Did the franchise need that kind of reboot? You know, I, I think in some ways, culturally, we did. The benefit of the things that, that happened during that time, and I credit Theo, I also credit Larry um, for really creating an environment and working so hard to not just, you know, find good people and then just sort of unleash them to, to think and learn and create. And so what happened with that is I think hopefully we, we found some ways to improve. Uh, but more than anything, I think that 
it served as a nice distraction to the the grill in the room, which was that, that we hadn't won the World Series in forever. So you know, it's, some kind of instead, of, instead, <laughs> instead of instead of sort of listening to everyone talk about how long it had been and you know sort of carrying that burden around we were just focused on working and and having fun doing it and learning from each other and you know hopefully getting some things right and making some mistakes and we were so focused on that that sort of captured our attention and took it away from whatever burden that we were carrying and now maybe Theo and Larry felt the burden uh, <laughs> because they were in the leadership roles uh, but for the rest of us, it was a, a fun time, um, exciting time, and a you know, huge period of growth personally as well as for the group. Summer 2004, Theo trades Nomar Garcia Power to the Cubs. You called that move bold and the turning point towards the Red Sox ending uh, the curse you mentioned before. How difficult is it as a front office to make that kind of move and trade essentially the face of your franchise or certainly one of them? Well, I think it was difficult for all of us, but I didn't realize at the time quite as much as I learned afterward when Theo opened up about it a little bit more, but it was really difficult for him. I mean, remember, we hadn't won the World Series yet, so whatever sort of credibility is gained from winning the World Series, that hadn't happened yet. So Theo was still trying to prove himself, and we were trying to prove ourselves as a group, and we're trading, you know, the guy that arguably had been our best player for years and had become a bit of a sort of iconic figure in Boston. And a guy, frankly, that when I joined the Red Sox, that was the guy that, you know, I thought of as um, the face of the team. You know, this is the guy that's going to lead us. Uh, he's a shortstop. He plays the game right, all those things. And so the decision to trade him was a monumental one in some ways for Theo, for all of us as a group, but Theo was obviously out front on it. And he was the one who had to explain it. He was the one who had to explain it to the players in the clubhouse publicly. And he didn't have three World Series rings on his finger to, <laughs> to, to back that up. So that was a really bold move and probably he probably lost some sleep. Uh, he covered for us, frankly, because it was probably hard for all of us, but he certainly... Um, he took the burden on that one. Speaking of Theo, I read a story once that he hit a golf ball in the office and it, off a couple of unfortunate bounces, hit you as square. <laughs> that in the did forehead. happen. That did happen. That did happen. Yeah. What, uh, what was it like working with Theo? Golf it was a lot aside. of. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was not one of my more fun moments, but net, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I'm blessed for the opportunity to work with him. And the golf ball incident happened, and you know, I guess. Quickly, once I realized I didn't lose like eyesight or anything, I, I sort of looked at it like, well, it's a positive. Like, it's going to be a lot harder for him to fire me now. <laughs> what was it like being part of the front office group that finally did end the curse and, and bring a World Series back to Boston? Really, at that time, I just felt like I was along for the ride. You know, I was farm director. And, you know, the truth is, you look back at that 2004 team, and that team was not made up of Red Sox players. It was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was, a, it was a collection of incredibly talented, sort of a, a motley crew or a, a loose confederacy of different personalities and talents that, that, you know, some of which had been there before Theo got there, and then some of, uh, some of whom Theo, you know, identified as people that could complement that team. And then, obviously, Tito became a huge part of it. And so I felt like I was along for the ride, and it was an exceptionally fun ride, <laughs> you know. Um, although, didn't, you know, after Game Three of the ALCS, certainly we, um, <laughs> we we basically had decided that we were tearing it all down and starting from scratch again. I mean, that's we, you know, we sort of felt like, okay, this didn't work, we're going to start over. But again, that's a point of which I credit Theo for helping me learn is that 
ultimately it's it's players who make that decision it's not us you know um, thankfully the players weren't in the office when we were talking about that you know, <laughs> right. and being depressed after going down 0-3 to the Yankees the players um, were by themselves and had formed a, a connection with each other and a shared purpose and decided that that was not going to be the end of that season so Thankfully, they were not in our room. December 2005, you and Jed Hoyer are named co-general managers of the team after Theo's departure. Theo then returned six weeks later and reclaimed the job. Yeah. How bizarre were those two months or so for you? It was a strange time. I don't think that Jed and I would have uh, done that had we not had some hope or belief that Theo was coming back. Because, look, like we knew that that was not probably an optimal structure, um, long-term structure. And so we agreed to do it for the benefit of the team and to try to buy time, basically. I think at the time, Jed and I felt like the best thing, the best thing for the Red Sox was to you know, buy the time necessary for Theo to come back and um, come back into the position and for us to continue to grow and keep building on what we had started. So we made that decision with that in mind. We didn't know for sure, but that was our hope. The decision-making structure uh, that winter you know, changed dramatically from one that, you know, where Theo was leading the baseball operations group and certainly collaborating and communicating with ownership, but uh, was playing the role of GM to one where it was really a group, a committee almost, um, trying to make decisions. And so that was challenging, but in some ways it was a great learning opportunity for me because, um, you know, often in these jobs, even in GM jobs now, I mean, you're never as as autonomous that as, as some people might think, you know, just about every decision is made as a group. And so a lot of the job is in um, communicating well, um, asking the right questions, processing information, influencing appropriately, not just making a decision because I want to make a decision. So in some ways, although challenging, that winter was a great opportunity to practice those skills. Uh, during your six-week stint as co-GM, you and Jed orchestrated the trade that brought Josh Beckett and Mike Lowell to Boston from the Marlins. Did it feel as big as it turned out to be? It felt big because we were we were making a big decision at a time when when we were in this new this new sort of decision-making environment, and there were new opinions being considered, and the conversation was different than it had been, and. We're trying to make a really big decision in that new environment. So for that reason, it felt really big. Obviously, we, we, you know, we didn't know exactly what would happen. I will give Larry and Bill Joy, um, rest his soul, a lot of credit for pushing me effectively uh, during that. Because, uh, look, I, I was coming from you know, a player, the player development perspective, thinking about young players, you know, dreaming about this Red Sox team that was going to be made up of young players and we we're going to nurture this. And so the idea of trading Hanley Ramirez and Annabelle Sanchez and these other guys was not something that I was pounding the table to do. But Larry and Bill's experience um, helped me think about it more rationally in a way in the sense that, look, like this is the Red Sox. We're in Boston we have this obligation to put the best team out there we possibly can, and we're not going to wait three years to do that. And what do we need most? We need a guy who has who has the ability, at least, to pitch in the most meaningful games at the end of the season. And Josh Beckett had that ability. And so there was an opportunity there that made sense for the Red Sox. But there was a lot of debate, and I'll be honest, at one point in the conversation, I was 
advocating against it. And then as a group uh, on Thanksgiving or whatever it was, we made the we made the decision to do it and um, and, you know, worked out well, worked out well for both teams, probably. But 2007, you were the assistant general manager. You guys won the World Series that year. How did that one compare to the first one, given that you were more, A, more involved with the major league team, and B, that one actually did have some homegrown guys who you probably had played some role in their being in the organization and their development? That team felt like a stronger reflection of what Theo said in his first press conference, which is the that we were going to build a scouting and player development machine. So it felt like by 2007, that was starting to manifest on the field. And you could see Dustin Pedroia, you could see Jacoby Ellsbury, you could see Papelbon, uh, Lester, others, etc., Euclid. The 2004 was just a great ride, uh, a magical experience. 2007 felt like, you know, in a way, sort of the apex of the entire organization really connecting to each other and, and the culmination of a lot of great work from players, from staff, uh, from everyone that ended up in a, in a great result. October of 2011, you become the general manager of the Red Sox. You inherited a team that suffered a historic September collapse. Terry Francona had been fired. Chicken and beer controversy had followed. It was an ugly, strange chapter in Red Sox history. Did you feel like you were coming in to a room with a giant spill and you had to clean it up? A little bit. I remember vividly having a conversation with Theo, you know, before he left that, and, and telling him, I really wanted to stay. <laughs> <laughs> don't um, do this to me. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't so much don't do this to me, but it was just that I think I probably just felt like, look, we've got work to do here and the work will be easier if we're doing it together than if, you know, you know you're not here. So, um, but there was an incredible opportunity for him. In retrospect, he made the right decision to leave at that time. And so, no, I saw it as an opportunity. It was not a question in my, uh, for me of whether I was going to accept the, the challenge of the job or not. I knew that I was walking into a challenge. Um, it's like anything else. I mean, I didn't know, you know just how big a challenge I was walking into like I do now. But I believed we had things to get better at. I believed that there were things we needed to clean up. But I also really believed in the people that were there, and I believed in the Red Sox. I believed in, in sort of you know the. I still believed in the in the greater direction of the the team, and and the people that were were there trying to trying to be a part of that. So it was an easy decision to say yes, but but yeah, I knew I was getting into a challenge. Your first major task was finding Tito's replacement, with some heavy input from ownership that ultimately proved to be Bobby Valentine. This was your first managerial hire. This is the first time you had been involved in that process. Uh, what was that process like for you? Hiring is incredibly important and difficult, no matter what the position is. Uh, when you're hiring for a major league manager, it just gets ratcheted up because um, it's a much more visible uh, decision. And so, you know, you, you know, when we're hiring for a hitting coordinator, we can pretty much do that in quiet. And yes, we want to have a really robust process and be thorough and have multiple opinions and and et cetera. But when you're doing it with a major league manager, you're kind of doing that in public. So, so if anything, I learned that, that you have to have some boundaries around how you do that um, because of the public nature of the search. And, you know, ultimately, I think when we hired Bobby, 2012 played out not because of Bobby, you know, like we were all a part of it, certainly. Um, it didn't work out and we were all a part of it. But in some ways, you know, we were still 
in need of fixing some things that had nothing to do with Bobby. And ultimately, we needed to do that as much as we needed to find a manager to help us with that. Ultimately became necessary, we felt, by the end of 2012 uh, to also find a new manager simply because it was going to be too difficult for Bobby to be a part of that, not so much because of anything he had done or his capabilities, but simply because of the sort of combination of factors. And, um, and, we, and, and so we felt like we needed a, a new start there. You guys finished last that season. Bobby V's let go after the year. But if there was a positive that season, it was the deal with the Dodgers. Traded away Adrian Gonzalez, Carl Crawford, and Josh Beckett. I think you about $260 million of payroll relief at that point from that deal, which paved the way for a roster and payroll reset. How hard is it to pull off a deal of that magnitude? Frankly, we were surprised that we were able to pull it off. Yeah, the magnitude of it and the timing of it in August, where we had to get huge contracts through waivers and the time that that required meant that we were sitting on it for, you know, 48 hours or so and any leak or uh, any, any information out there about it, it could have, uh, m- might've been an impulse for a team to block a trade or something or block, you know, block some waivers or whatever. And maybe that, maybe gets that, that gets in the way of it. So in some ways it had been kind of bubbling since April or May um, because the Dodgers kept, kept calling and asking about Adrian you know, I think they felt like Adrian was sort of the perfect player for their situation. The team had the Dodgers had just sold. They're looking for a, a marquee player who fits their team, their market. Here's a kid from kid, a guy from <laughs> uh, you know Southern California, uh, Mexican, bicultural, bilingual, great hitter. You know, it sort of fit perfectly uh, for them. Um, and of course, early that year, we had absolutely zero interest in trading Adrian Gonzalez. So it was just sort of taking the calls and politely telling Ned that, yeah, we're not trading him. But they kept expressing this interest. So it was, and then over the course of that season, we had all kinds of conversations. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, it'd circle back. They kept asking about Adrian. But we'd talk about other guys. They, you know, they, they, were in, they had some interest in Beckett at the trade deadline. But they clearly, their sort of holy grail was Adrian. And when we got to the trade deadline, we just weren't ready to make that move. We were actually uh, weren't really out of it quite yet. We were not ready to um, cash in on the season. And obviously, at a place like Boston, you've got to do that like really carefully. And we weren't ready to sell in on the season yet. And so we, we sort of played the middle ground. We made a small trade for Craig Breslow, who actually ended up helping us a lot the next year. We had a relatively quiet trade deadline, uh, although a lot of a lot of talks, a lot of conversation. But by then, even after the trade deadline, we had a lot of knowledge about the Dodgers, about their interests, about what they were trying to do as an organization. Um, and so, as we get into August and the team's not doing well, and it becomes more clear that now we're really out of it, we were faced with our roster as it's currently constituted. You know, if we go into the off season with this roster. In order to improve, we're mostly going to be trying to work around the edges. You know, we're going to be we're going to be trying to find some improvements in the margins, and we're not going to have a ton of flexibility to do that, um, just because we were heavily committed. And and by then, obviously, we'd come off September 2011. We had now had this difficult year in 2012, so we felt more urgency to really have a reset and and sort of change the shape of the roster. 
But we also felt very strongly at the time that we still had a core of players that could make up a winning team. I mean, Dustin Pedroia was on that team. Justin Lest- John Lester was on that team. Um, Ellsbury was on that team. You know, the- John Lackey was on that team. Tech was still playing. We had really good players, and we felt like we still had a chance to win. But for some reason, the collection of players wasn't working. And so those two things, sort of the, the, the knowledge about the Dodgers and just the realism of where we were as a team kind of collided in August uh, and made us ask the question, like, well, let's, maybe it's worth finding out just how badly they want Adrian Gonzalez and just see. That was the sort of the, how the trade germinated. And then it wasn't so much about, you know, we have to move this player or we have to move that player. It was really more about, if we're going to reshape this roster and sort of change the dynamic in the team, the only way to do that is to create payroll flexibility. The only way we're going to do that is to uh, find a way to move contracts. And the only way to do that is to, is to have some incentive for a team to take those contracts. And that strongest, the strongest incentive for the Dodgers was, was Adrian Gonzalez. You made seven free agent signings that winter. David Ross, Johnny Gomes, Stephen Drew, Mike Napoli, Shane Victorino, Koji Uihara, and Ryan Dempster. Those guys all helped reshape that team along with the core you mentioned. Uh, you went on to win the World Series. I remember that October, everybody revisiting your offseason and saying you went seven for seven. How, how impressive or how unlikely is it to hit on seven guys, none of whom were the nine-figure, right. you know, sort of obvious free agents? It's not usual, you know, <laughs> certainly to... For guys to work out in one year like that, but I think what happened, you know, from my vantage point, what happened with that team is that, you know, once we got to spring training, and and people talk about the marathon bombing, which was an important, um, although tragic, important moment for the team. But what I saw happening in spring training of that year was something different um, in terms of how that team was connecting with each other and. Um, I remember vividly walking through the, the little the, the eating room where the guys you know had lunch after the workouts and it was kind of off the clubhouse and uh, walking through there to get something to eat and I remember passing a table and David Ross was sitting and I think Lackey and Lester were there but I remember hearing overhearing the conversation as I was waiting for my food and they were talking about a bunt defense, you know, your sort of standard bunt defense drill that you run in early spring training. But they were talking about it in a way where they were saying, we've got to do this and he's got to, he's got to be in this position and, and you know, we've got to do that better tomorrow. And I'd never heard a group of major league players, you know, in a, after an early spring training out workout, talk about a bunt defense drill with that kind of passion. And um, it struck me that if that's, emblematic in some way of what this group is, other conversations this group is having, that our focus towards the details and towards preparing and towards winning is much different uh, than it had been. And ultimately, it was for that year and that group. So the seven free agents, you know, I wonder in some way if they were part of creating that environment, a lot of them helped push those conversations and, and push that focus um, I give I give them all. They all had a piece of the credit for doing that, and I also wonder if they all benefited from that personally. Because look, when we're in an environment like that where we're being pushed and challenged, and there is a heightened focus, then you know it probably helps our own performance. So um, by focusing more, by by that team focus being focused more, it may have also helped those seven free agents perform. 
you mentioned the tragedy with the marathon bombing. The Red Sox were at the forefront of the whole Boston Strong movement. Uh, how meaningful was it to be a part of that after what the city went through? You know, it was meaningful, I think, to see the players um, so willingly accept being a part of the healing. I think they just sort of opened their arms to and said, hey, everyone, you know, come on board with us and we're going to give you something to root for here for the, for the rest of the season. And that happened in different ways. That happened, certainly there was plenty of stuff that happened at Fenway Park, but there was a lot of stuff that happened that no one saw. You know, we had guys visiting hospitals on their own with without anybody knowing about it. We had guys visiting people doing, re, you know, over at Spalding doing rehab without ever, anyone knowing about it. So it was something that I think for a team that had already connected pretty well and um, had already sort of figured out, you know, a shared purpose. Now, instead of just connecting with each other, now there was something that really connected them to connected that team to to the fan base and to the to the city and to the region. Sort of remarkable. We've talked this long without mentioning David Ortiz. He was kind of a big part of yeah. all of these teams we've discussed. What was it like for you, as the GM, assistant GM, whatever it may have been, to watch him walk up to the plate in a big spot? Boy, you know, I hope I never took it for granted, uh, but I probably did in some ways because. He executed. He 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 came through so often um, and in so many big moments that you know you did sort of start to expect it. And um, but that doesn't happen by accident. Everyone knows that rationally. We know that that just doesn't just happen. It happens because David spent a life practicing a skill and getting better at it every single day and working on his craft uh, from a technical standpoint. From a knowledge standpoint, from an approach standpoint, from a mental skill standpoint, everything that a hitter has to do to get better and be prepared to execute in those moments, he just kept working on all his life. And ultimately, I don't think it's that he had this God-given gift to just be calm in those moments. I think that he worked so hard um, in every aspect of his hitting that when he was in those moments, he was confident because he had done the work. Uh, you won Executive of the Year honors in 2013 after you won the World Series. First Boston Executive to win it since 1975, which seems surprising given everything that had happened before yeah. that. Uh, what did that mean to you personally? Well, it just meant that collectively we had accomplished something. You know, I mean, that's ultimately most of the time those awards go to teams that have success and accomplish something. And so, you, you know, someone is recognized for that. So it just felt like a, a recognition that as a, as a group, we had accomplished something and hopefully improved um, and, you know, come, come from a difficult situation in 2012 and, and, you know, created a more positive story. So, so in 2014, you guys struggle again. You trade John Lester that summer. Yeah. Was that tough for you personally, given that you had, you know, been there for his whole career? You had as a farm director, you played a role in him getting up there. Yeah. It, it, it harkens back to the Nomar trade in terms of trading a guy who had been one of the faces of the team, but was this one a little tougher for you personally? It was in, 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 that, in that respect. Um, it also was because I felt like we hadn't had the conversation I hoped to have with John prior to that season. You know, So whatever the reasons were for that, as GM, you know, I'll take responsibility that I was GM at the time, so I'll take responsibility that for whatever the reasons, we were not able to have as productive a conversation with John about the extension going into 2014 as I would have hoped. 
and ultimately that led in some ways to the trade uh, because we knew once we got into the season it was going to be difficult to have that conversation with John until after the season. And once we got into the season, the team wasn't doing as well. We also knew that, and I knew that, you know, we couldn't risk, the team couldn't risk um, just letting him go in free agency without any return. So I don't regret the trade, although it was difficult. um, I regret not being able to, uh, I guess, engineer, for lack of a better word, a a more productive conversation earlier in that that year. A year later, August 2015, Larry Lucchino announces he's going to retire at the end of the year. John Farrell announces he's taking an extended leave to battle cancer. Did it feel like things were unraveling a little bit in the organization at that point? Well, it felt like the momentum that we had, any momentum that we had gained off of 2013, and you know, so whatever opportunity came from that momentum that we had not taken full advantage of that momentum. And so I felt like there was some missed opportunity there. And it's interesting, and I, I felt so bad for John because when he was diagnosed, that was like literally the time that we had, you know, at that point we're past the deadline, we're getting towards the end of the season, and it was literally the time that he and I had started talking about, hey, what do we learn from? What do we learn from this season? Um, what do we need? What, if anything, do we need to do, the two of us, to get back to who we want to be? And then we didn't have that opportunity. So I think as I look back to those, both those years, 14 and 15, we accepted the challenge of, of you know, winning in Boston and accepted what that meant. And so while I feel good in a sense that, you know, since I've left, um, the young players that we believed in have been a part of their more recent success, either by playing for the team or by or by being used to acquire Chris Sale or Craig Kimball or whoever it is. So while I feel good about that, and I feel good about the people that were there that are either still there and continuing to do good work or have gone elsewhere and, and are doing good work, I don't feel good about 2014 and 2015 because I and we took on a challenge to find a way to win in those years, and we didn't accomplish that. And Um, and in a place like Boston, when you don't do that, um, two years in a row, change happens. (laughs) And, uh, and that change was me. So as you say, change happens. A couple weeks later, Dave Dombrowski is brought in to be the president of baseball operations. They asked you to stay on as general manager. Was there any part of you that considered it? Was it something where you just said, I need to move on? How how did all that sort of run through your head as as this was happening? It never, you know, it really never felt like a choice at the time. I mean, I think there were some public comments earlier in that year that, and I appreciated them at the time, you know, I think ownership was trying to be supportive and saying, no, Ben's going to be here for a long time. And so the notion of, you know, turning around, um, a couple of months later and reversing that probably, you know, maybe that just wasn't possible at the time. Um, but it never felt like a choice to me. I mean, I don't think it would have been fair to Dave Dombrowski, never mind me. That's nothing to do with Dave Dombrowski. It just, it's just that whatever our best efforts <laughs> would have been, it would have been, uh, diff- I think difficult uh, for both of us, for either of us to truly contribute in a way we wanted to um, had I still been there. I had so many relationships there. I would have even unintentionally been influencing people. So it would not have, I don't think it would have been productive uh, for me to stay. It was very clear to me that, you know, the decision to hire Dave was a decision to ask someone else to lead baseball operations. I mean, it was very clear. It was not, you know, you're not hiring someone to be part of a baseball operations team. You're hiring someone who's got 30 years of 
executive experience to come in and run baseball operations. So that was just very clear to me. It never really felt like a choice. You say you think a lot more about 2014 and 15 than earlier on. How do you assess your overall run? You know, I've tried to, I've been asked that question. I, I don't give a great answer to it because I've just never, I've never thought about it as in, you know, was it successful or was it not? I don't even know how to qualify it or, or, you know, label it. I appreciate John, Tom, and Larry giving me the opportunity. I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from Larry. Um, he's an incredibly smart guy who pushed me uh, to get better. Um, and I feel really badly about 2014 and 2015, and I think I've learned from those that experience. I also believe that a lot of the work we did is still benefiting the Red Sox. So I look at the time I spent as GM as part of a 17-year you know, experience with the Red Sox that mostly was, you know, incredibly positive, uh, rewarding and blessed to have had the opportunity to be GM there for four years and whatever, you know, whatever anyone else wants to label it is fine with me. I know for me, uh, it was a great experience. Uh, one that made me better. Um, you do the one thing about, you know, being a GM is, is like it pushes you to be better in ways that maybe you didn't think you could be or didn't consider before that. It's just the challenge of that job. It's, it's the sort of the ultimate in being purposeful. Like you have, you have to find a way to be purposeful. It stretches you sort of past where maybe you thought you could go. So from that standpoint, like I'm so blessed to have had the opportunity because I, I learned a ton from it. I think I'm better at whatever I do now for having that experience. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of the work we did and I'm proud of the people I worked with and I'm extremely competitive. So I want the Blue Jays to beat the Red Sox, uh, badly. Uh, but I'm happy that Mookie Betts is doing well and I'm happy that Jackie Bradley is doing well and, um, I'm happy for the people that are still there that I know. Brian Cashman said he reached out to you after you left Boston about maybe coming to work in New York. Is that an intriguing possibility for you at all? I appreciated it. I, I think I have really, really res- huge respect for the Yankees. I think they're doing a lot of good things, and Brian's obviously leading that. Um, no doubt I would have learned a lot from being there. But really, as I, as I started to look for a new job, I focused on three things. I focused on one, you know, where could I learn? What organization could I learn? You know, whether it's from the people there or the things they were doing. Two, where could I make a contribution? You know, where whatever experiences I've had, where could I use those experiences to make a contribution? And then three, you know, I, I wanted to be at a place that really cared about helping players get better. And you know, thirty teams say that, but um, not every team is actually putting resources to that, committing resources. So there are other teams other than the Blue Jays that would have checked all those three boxes. But ultimately, um, I also have, had relationships here, uh, not just with Mark and Ross, but you know I've known Tony LaCava forever. Uh, Mike Morove had already come over here from the Red Sox as director of baseball ops, and we worked together in Boston for a long time. So there are some relationships. So it just uh, it felt like it felt like very clearly the right place and. Uh, it's been a great experience for the last year and a half. You had turned down a couple of other opportunities to interview for GM jobs like the Mariners and Phillies. Instead, you took a job as an executive in residence at Columbia University <laughs> and taught a course in leadership and sports in their sports management master's program. What made you decide to go the academic route even for that short time? Well, the first step in that was that when I left the Red Sox, you know, it, it obviously didn't end the way I wanted it to, and I needed to, I want, I really wanted to learn from that. I wanted to, as I said, like look at 2014, 2015 and figure out 
what my role in that was. And I, and I thought I needed some time to do that. I didn't think that was like a week long project. I thought that was like a month long, months long project. And part of me just wanted to learn from that before I jumped into anything again. I just felt like I'd be, whatever job I took next, I felt like I'd be better at if I spent some time learning about what happened. So I decided to do that. And that was, you know, so by September, I decided to take some time to really focus on learning from my experience in Boston and so once I started to do that, then it gets into the middle of the winter. You know, once it's January, you're sort of out of the hiring cycle at that point. So, so I was looking for something to, I was looking for a way to be fulfilled uh, to, you know, during a time uh, that I was away from baseball. So this teaching opportunity came up. I happened to live close enough to New York to get to Columbia. And it just seemed like a great fit. And thankful for Vince Gennaro, who was running the program at the time, for asking me to do it. Uh, and they just sort of gave me an opportunity to, to take a class that already existed and sort of make it my own. So it was a new experience. And I remember the first time walking into class, my first class, it would have been late January. Uh, and I was nervous. You're out of your element. Yeah. You know, so prepared for discussion. And I was trying to use cases and uh, trying to think about what the students' needs were. And it was not a, you know, 24 students in the class average age was around 27 and one of those 24 had any interest in baseball so it was not a baseball class um in fact why'd you trade nomar (laughs) exactly in fact that one guy is now working for the diamondbacks but the rest of the class were interested in you know other things and so i didn't want it to be a baseball class um but i wanted it to make i wanted to make it something that would be useful uh for the students and hopefully it was in the end but it was a it was a fun thing to do, and, and personally, what I got out of it was that, uh, first of all, it's fun to be in a classroom because um, really, when you're in, once you're in the classroom, it's a lot like being in a conference room with a group of coaches. You're just tr- you're just like looking at a problem and trying to find solutions for it. The preparation is a little bit different, uh, but for me, the benefit is that it really challenged my assumptions about you know what I, some of the things I believed in in terms of you know, how to manage people or how to hire or how to build culture or whatever those things are. Because when you prepare to say those things in front of a group of 24 kids who are paying to be there, you know, you have to make sure you really believe in it. So, uh, so it tested those assumptions a little bit. It was a, it was a great exercise for that standpoint. In 2016, you turned down a chance to interview for the head of baseball ops job with the Twins. Then you joined the Blue Jays. You mentioned some of the reasons before why the Blue Jays were an appealing option for you. How much was Mark a part of that, and how did he tell you that you were going to fit into their front office and what sort of what they were looking from you? Mark and Ross both uh, were a huge part of it, and um, yeah, I think other than those three categories I mentioned before, you know, the wanting to learn, wanting to contribute, and wanting to be in a place that, that cared about helping players get better, certainly check those three boxes. But I think I think on top of that, I just saw unique opportunity um, to be part of a, an organization that was really trying to grow. And since I've been here, two things that really stand out. One is that I get to work with a group of people who are truly, truly just trying to get better every day. And that sounds so simple, but I see examples of it every day here, and, and that's challenged me. Uh, that's pushed me to try to get better and, and keep learning. And and the first step towards that requires sort of a collective humility. You know, if you don't have that humility, um, then 
it's much less likely you're going to learn and try to get better. So there's a real, despite the combined experiences we have, there's a real collective humility. And it, it does remind me in some ways of those early years of the Red Sox in that we're really trying to get better and trying to uh, build a, a, a baseball operations culture and work environment that that is lasting. And someone who's an intern here right now can be in an environment that gives them a chance to be an assistant director and then a director and then an assistant GM and a GM someday. I mean, that's the kind of place that I want to be a part of. That's the place I was a part of for a long time with the Red Sox. Um, I feel like that's what we're going to do here. There are massive challenges ahead. Obviously, we play in a really competitive division. We have you know, a talented team, but not a perfect team. And so, you know, planning in the AL East, what's going to be, we're going to get pushed and tested. We're excited about kind of the, like directionally, how our young players are doing, but um, they're not fully mature yet. And that's going to take some more time. But what stood out to me is just that interest in learning and that real desire to create that culture that I was used to. In Boston, and then and then the other part of it is that the Blue Jays are unique. The Blue Jays represent a country, and it's the only team in baseball that can say that. And so, the idea of being part of building that organization and that culture uh, in a place like Toronto, given what the Blue Jays mean to all of Canada, is really appealing. And that's uh, that stood out to me also. I think most fans hear the words general manager, they know kind of what the job is. They hear the words farm director, they kind of know what the job is. Vice president of baseball operations, a little vaguer. <laughs> yeah. what's, your, what's your day-to-day like? Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, the majority of my time is spent uh, with our player development and high-performance leadership, trying to help that group uh, find solutions and find ways to get better, whether it's in process or hiring or with a particular challenge with a player or whatever it is. And while that's happening, I'm learning from them too, certainly. That's part of the people I mentioned that's pushing me to get better. Uh, so a big chunk of my time is, is working with our player development and high-performance leadership team. And then I'm fortunate that Ross has sort of given me the latitude to be involved in you know, other areas and, and sort of be flexible about where those entry points are. So um, at different points in, this, in the year, that'll change. In the off-season, I you know, get more involved in the major league stuff. Um, and, and that's, you know, just part of a team of people doing that, um, you know, different points in the year. I might spend some time with the other directors in the department, um, helping them with through something, whether it's a something related to strategy or hiring or staff development or whatever it is. So I'm fortunate I have some latitude to do that. But um, certainly in spring training, um, mostly focused on working with our, our leadership and just on helping players get better. That's the simple way to say it. You've said that you don't necessarily feel the need to be a GM again. Why is that? I guess the reason, the reason is, that, is that it's not that I wouldn't. It's that what's most important to me is, is to be in a position where I can lead people and where I can be part of something where there's a shared purpose and a shared set of values and that, and that, and that connects, you know, connects that group of people. I feel like I'm a part of that here. It doesn't mean there wouldn't be other places I could be a part of that, but that's what is most important to me. Blue Jays Vice President of Baseball Operations, Ben Charrington, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Ben Charrington for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. The Blue Jays have their work cut out for them in the American League East, but with top prospects Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette racing towards the big leagues, the future in Toronto is bright. Our next episode will feature a conversation with Orioles Vice President of Baseball Operations, Brady Anderson. We'll talk about his lengthy baseball career, the transition to the front office, 
why he still likes to stand in the batter's box against pitchers, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.